passage. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 7. Jesus said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we want to ask that once again Your blessing will accompany the preaching of Your Word. I pray that Your people will receive it as it is, not the Word of man, but the Word of God. And I ask that this series has not been in vain. I pray that our prayer lives will be changed because of Jesus' instructions to us in this the greatest of all prayers. So Father, help us to apply what we have heard. Earlier we said that we need to be more than hearers of the Word. We need to be doers. And specifically, we need to pray as Jesus tells us to pray. So by Your grace, help us to pray in this manner that Jesus has commanded us to. In His name, we pray again. Amen. You may be seated. The story is told of a seedy nightclub that opened in a community and it was having a detrimental effect on that community and the local church of that area was really bothered by the effect this nightclub was having. So, they decided that they were going to gather together one evening and have a prayer meeting and specifically ask God to intervene on behalf of their community and to do a work and to undo the damage that this nightclub was having in their community. Well, later that evening, there was a tremendous thunderstorm. Lightning struck the nightclub and burned it to the ground. Now, the nightclub owner found out about the prayer meeting and as a result, he hired an attorney and he sued the church for damages. Uh, the church responded by also hiring an eternity, or excuse me, not an eternity. <laughs> be nice if you could hire an eternity. Uh, they hired an attorney and said that they were not responsible for the damages. Well, the judge listened to both sides and he said, this really is a curious case. I have never heard anything like it in all my years of being a judge. He said, regardless of where the guilt lies, one thing is clear. The nightclub owner believes in prayer and the church members don't. <laughs> now, an honest question that we need to ask ourselves is do we believe in prayer? Do we Christians who call God our Father, do we believe in prayer? You know what the honest answer is? We don't. Not really. Not like we should. 
And I can prove it to you by asking a simple question. How much time in prayer did you spend last week? How much time did you spend in prayer last week? You said, well, you know, I'm busy. I had to get up early for work. We had so much going on. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm just asking how much time you spent in prayer because this is what I know. If we really believe that we're praying to a Father in Heaven who is listening to us and will answer our prayers, we would pray a lot more than we do, wouldn't we? If we're just honest, wouldn't we pray a lot more? Worry a lot less? Fret a lot less? Now, due to our weakness, Jesus in His mercy and grace gives us the Lord's Prayer at least in part to bolster our confidence in prayer so that we will come before God's presence and pray. And not just pray, but to pray with confidence. And this is where our series began and this is where our series is going to end because the prayer begins by Jesus helping us to be confident and it ends by helping us to be confident. And to help us grow in confidence this morning, I want us to consider four points. Number one, you can fill in the outline if you like. Number one, confidence comes from reminding ourselves that God is our Father. Confidence comes from reminding ourselves that God is our Father. Not a genie in a bottle. He's not a distant deity somewhere beyond Jupiter. He is our Father. And as we saw in our catechism question earlier this morning, where is God? God is everywhere, including right here when we pray. Remember the context? Verse 7, Jesus said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. So He says, don't be like the Gentiles. They have confidence that they will be heard because of their many words. So it seems that they think, well, if I can exhaust God or manipulate God, uh, then maybe He will answer my prayers. Uh, These people have a business relationship with God. Basically, if I do my part, that obligates God to do His part. And my part is to pray a lot. And if I pray a really, really lot, then God will say, okay, boy, look at all that praying. I'm really impressed. God will answer. Notice, they think they will be heard. They think that God will answer because of all this praying. Technically, we could say that they have a religious relationship. Notice, Jesus isn't talking about atheists. He's not talking about skeptics. He's talking about religious people. People who pray a lot. These are people who pray. They might pray more than you and I. These are religious people. And they're praying a lot. Because they think that by doing so, God will be, I don't know, maybe impressed. And God will say, wow, I'm so impressed with you. I'm going to give you a positive answer. You know what? I wonder how many people who go to church pray a lot because they think it will obligate God. I wonder how many people went to church last night and how many people will go to church this morning because they think if I go to church, then God will be pleased with me and He'll give me the blessings that I'm asking Him for. And if we're really honest, 
even Christians can slip into a religious relationship. But let's remember, we don't have a religious relationship. We have a father-son relationship. And there's a big difference between a religious relationship and a father-son relationship. Again, a religious relationship is where you do all the religious thing that God calls you to do. You pray, you give, you go to church so that God is pleased with you and then God will bless you. That's not how we view our relationship with God. It's a father-child. We go to God and we say, Abba, Father, this is what's bothering me. This is what I need. Can you help me? And I trust that you will help me. And I trust that you will do what is best. And we leave it there. We don't have to go on and on. We leave it there. And we trust Him because He is our Father. He is perfect. And He will do what is best for us. And that's the emphasis that we find. Jesus says in the next verse, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So He reminds them, your Father knows what you need. So just ask. It's like when our children come to us. They don't give us a lecture. They just say, this is what I want. And they're waiting for a yes or a no or a maybe or later or I'll think about it or go ask your mother. But, but they, they, just, they just ask. And it's fascinating. In this chapter, there is a huge emphasis on God being our Father. It comes up again and again. We see it in six one. We see it in 6.4. We see it in 6.6. We see it in 6.18. Again and again, he says, God is your Father. Go to Him and He'll reward you. In other words, He'll do what He thinks is best. And then this especially comes out at the end of chapter 6. We're beginning at verse 30. We read Jesus saying this, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into oven, Will He not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And that's why we don't have confidence in prayer because we're lacking faith. And in order to help us with our faith, Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So again, he says, remember, you have a Heavenly Father who knows what you need so you don't have to run after all these things. And he says, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So if we're going to have confidence as we come before God, we need to remember He's our Father. We're His children. and He will answer as He sees fit. Number two, Confidence comes from reminding God of His nature. Confidence comes from reminding God of His nature. Now, I want to look at a passage, and I'm not drawing this specifically from the Lord's Prayer, but we definitely need to bring it into our prayer life. And this is from Genesis 18, and you can turn there if you like. Genesis 18. Context is um, the tremendous corruption in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord says the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Their sin is grievous. He says, I'm going to go down and I'm going to see if what I have heard is really that bad. And God does go down and we have what's technically known as a theophany. Big term. It just means an appearance of God. 
and God appears to Abraham. And this is what we read in verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And that refers to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then reading between the lines, we know that he has told Abraham what he's about to do. And we know that because of what we read in verse 23. Then Abraham drew near, and that is drew near the Lord who was standing in front of him in the appearance of a man, and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, what's implied there? Will you just judge and destroy the, the righteous right, right along with, with the wicked? You know what he's implying there? He's implying that that wouldn't be just for you to treat the wicked just like the righteous. That, that wouldn't be right. And then in verse 25, Abraham says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Far be it from you. You you can't do that. In other words, that wouldn't be just. And you are a just God. Now, where did Abraham learn this? I think he learned it from Noah and the flood. The whole world was corrupt and we're told that there was only one righteous man, Noah. And God said, because you're righteous, I'm going to save you and your family, but I'm going to destroy everybody else. And Abraham will earn that when God brings judgment, He doesn't treat the righteous and the wicked the same way. Remember, this is judgment for sin. This isn't just uh, discipline. This is judgment. And God doesn't judge His people like He judges unbelievers. So he says, you can't do that. That wouldn't be right. And then, most of you know the story, we have this uh, fascinating interchange between Abraham and Lord. And he says, if there are 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? Now, that's fascinating. Where did Abraham get the idea that maybe if there's 50 righteous, for the sake of 50, God will spare maybe thousands? I don't know how many people were in the cities. Where did he get that idea? I think he's extrapolating what he learned from Noah. Noah was righteous. And because Noah was righteous, he and his family were spared. And he thought if one man can spare a family, maybe 50 righteous people can spare a city. Maybe God would do that. So he says, if there's 50 righteous, will you spare the city? And what does God say? He says He will. By the way, that. That's a fascinating lesson. That that tells us for the sake of just a small, tiny remnant in a city or a community, God will spare it. God will act on behalf of the righteous. And then Abraham gets a little bold and he says, well, what there's five left then? (laughs) Then 50, 45. And then you remember that. Then he goes to 30. Let me try again. I skip four. He goes to 40, 30, 20. He tries one last time. Don't be upset with me, Lord. If there's 10 righteous and God says, yeah, if there's 10, if I can find just 10 righteous people, you know what? I won't destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. If there had been 10 righteous people, Sodom and Gomorrah would not have been judged, but there weren't even 10 righteous people. So God did 
destroy them. But here's the question I have for you. Have you ever appealed to God based on His nature? In prayer, have you, have you ever said, Lord, do this because you're this kind of God? I know a pastor said he was going through a difficult time on one occasion and he, he said, Lord, I need, I need you to comfort me. I need you to strengthen me. You're my father. And if one of my children came to me in this condition, I would put my arm around him. I would embrace him. I would console him. Lord, I'm coming to you. I need your embrace. You're my father. I'm your son. You love me. Will you intervene because of your love for me? You ever done that? That'll help us to be bold. That'll help us to be confident. Say, Lord, I need you to do this because you're this kind of a God. This is your nature. Remind God of His nature. That's what Abraham did. He was reminding God of who He is. Number three. It's related to number two. Confidence comes from reminding God of His promises. Confidence comes from reminding God of His promises. Turn to Exodus 32, if you will. Exodus 32. The Lord has delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, brought them through the Red Sea, bringing them into the Promised Land. And this is the infamous golden calf debacle. Uh, while Moses is away, the people are playing. And it is not a playing that is pleasing to God. Um, it's an idolatrous playing and rivalry. And Aaron has put together um, this golden calf and they're bowing down before it and they're worshiping it. And the Lord sees what is going on and He is ticked off, to say the least. And not only is He ticked off, He is so angry that He is ready to destroy all His people that He just brought out of Egypt. And this is what we read in Exodus 32.10. Now, the Lord is speaking to Moses, Therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses is a much more godly man than I am. I think if I had heard that and I saw the Lord's anger at His people, and then He said, I'll make you into a great... I think I might have said, okay, to be honest with you. <laughs> I think I might have stepped back and just said, okay. That is not what Moses does. But, and I think it's a, one of those big buts, very strong imperative, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? That's pretty bold right there. Whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And then Moses says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. 
Imagine saying to God Almighty, Remember, God, did you forget? Let me help you out. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? That's pretty bold. God, you need to remember. And implied in that is, it seems that you have forgotten, so let me help you out here. Remember Abraham, whom you chose. Remember Isaac. And remember Israel. And remember that you swore by yourself and you said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Lord, you can't do this. Stop being angry. Remember what you have promised and bring these people into the land and bless them so that they are fruitful and multiply. That is beyond bold. That is audacious. And how did the Lord respond? He relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people. That's great. God likes for us to tell Him, Lord, You need to remember. Turn back to Genesis 9, if you will. This is fascinating. This is right after the flood. Bless you. Genesis 9.11 After the flood, the Lord establishes a covenant between Him and Noah. Genesis 9.11 I will establish My covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. So this is going to be a sign of this covenant that He's making that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And he says, I have set my bow, the rainbow, in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between you and every living creature. Now, here you have to think, then I'm going to remember. God need something to remind him, you know, like God is in heaven, you know. Oh yeah, there's the rainbow. That's right, I promise that I'm not going to destroy the people. God likes to be reminded. And then dropping down to verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So realize the rainbow is the sign of the covenant that God won't destroy the world. And it not only reminds us of God's promise, but it also reminds Him of His promise. And that's very important. Remember, sign of the covenant. Let me just say that one more time. It's the sign of the covenant. And we'll talk about that a little later in communion. Now, have you ever reminded God of His promises? Have you ever said, Lord, I need you to intervene. And, and this is what you have promised. I remember the, one of the first times that I really appealed to God based on His, his promise. I, I was a new believer, just a few years old in the Lord. And uh, I had I was in college. I had a summer job working in a factory, 
And there was a woman in that factory. She had recently become a believer. And she asked me um, if it was lawful, biblical, for her to divorce her husband because she had filed for divorce. And I said, well, why, why are you filing for divorce? And she said, my husband plays softball four or five times a week. He is neglecting his family. And because of this, I've had it and I want to divorce him. And I, I said gently, yeah, he is definitely neglecting his family. Uh, but biblically, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you don't have grounds for divorce. You can't say that you're divorcing your husband because he plays too much softball. And I'll never forget how big her eyes got and the look on her face. Uh, but she took that to heart. She did not file for divorce. Um, a little while later, her husband filed for divorce and he was doing more than playing softball in the evenings. Um, he was seeing some other women as well. And I remember they were going through divorce and she was going to be kicked out of her apartment. She had no place to go. She had three young kids and she was just wondering what was God doing. And I remember thinking Philippians 4.19. He's saying, Lord, you promise you will meet all our needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Here's a new believer. She's trying to be faithful. She's trying to follow you. Her life is going south. She needs you to intervene and her kids. And God answered. God provided her with a house. The rent was cheaper. And the kids had a yard that they could now play in. And I remember just thinking, Lord, you... You do provide. But if we're going to have confidence in prayer, if we're going to have boldness, we need to ask ourselves this question. Why should God answer our prayers? It's a good question. I remember asking that a few weeks ago before the service when we were praying. And I said, why should God answer our prayers? Don't just pray, but say to yourself, even consciously, why should God answer this? and tell God why He should answer your petition so that it gives you confidence. And that brings us to our, our final point, the doxology. You thought we, we'd never get to the doxology. Confidence comes from reminding God that it's His kingdom, His power, and His glory that we're asking to be displayed. I'll say it again. Confidence comes from telling God that it's His kingdom, it's His power, it's His glory that we're asking to be displayed. We're not ultimately asking for ourselves. We're ultimately asking so that His name will be glorified. Now, I want you to notice how this doxology begins. And to see it, you may have to look at your footnote like I do. But this is how it begins. It begins with the word for. F-O-R. Four. So, let me give you a short 30-second grammar lesson. Real quick. Um, this is a purpose clause. The word for introduces a purpose clause. For this reason. Uh, a synonym of for is because. Maybe that makes it a little easier. Because. So here's the flow of the Lord's Prayer. It goes something like this. Father, I'm praying to you 
You're not only my God generically, but you're my Father. I've been adopted into your family. You are the God who's in the heavens. You are right here. Father, I want your name to be exalted. I want it to be praised. I want your kingdom to come. Bring in your kingdom. This is why we want your blessing on our upcoming series at the church because we want your kingdom to come. We want your enemies to be converted. And Father, you can convert all of them. Even the most extreme enemies can be converted and come to know Jesus Christ. And we want your will to be done just as it is in heaven. We want earth to be a reflection of heaven. We want your will to be done more and more. And this will happen as your kingdom comes. So bring in your kingdom so that your will can be done. Father, I have these needs. Please answer these needs. And I ask for your forgiveness. Please forgive me. I'm weak. I'm prone to temptation. And I have an enemy, the evil one. And I ask for your deliverance from him. And then we pray for those things. And all the other things that we want to pray are included in those petitions. And then we say, Lord, do these things because it's Your kingdom that's at stake. It's not my kingdom. This is Your kingdom. And we want Your power to be put on display so people can see what a great and awesome God You are and sing praises to You and bring glory to Your name. I want you to answer so that you are glorified. Do a work with Bob Began so that when he raises his hand, people will praise you. Or if you're not going to answer us or heal us, give us grace so that we can be a testimony to you. And we can say to people, you know what? Even if God doesn't heal me of this disease, even if I end up dying of cancer, God is a good God and He has sustained me. And people can stand in awe of you, a God who can sustain people through the worst of situations. Doesn't that bring confidence? Lord, do this. Because it's Your name and Your power and Your glory that are at stake. Do it for You. Your name. That's what Moses was doing. You can't kill these people. What would the Egyptians say? They would say that you're a wicked, evil God who doesn't keep His covenantal promises to His people. No way. Your glory is at stake. You can't do that. You bring these people into the promised land, Lord. You bring them. You fulfill Your Word. Your glory is at stake. And God says, I'm going to do it. And that's where our confidence comes from. Now, why, why isn't this, just real quickly, why isn't this doxology included in some manuscripts? Here's what Philip Graham Ryken says. It's not hard to guess why the doxology, although not included in the earliest manuscripts, might have been added. Jewish prayers of that time nearly always ended with words of praise. For example, each of the standard synagogue prayers, known as the 18 benedictions, ended with a doxology. The most common Jewish doxology went as follows. Blessed be the name of the glory of His kingdom forever and ever. It would have been unthinkable for a Jew to offer a prayer in those days without some kind of doxology, especially a prayer that ended the way the Lord's Prayer ended with the words, Deliver us from the evil one. Rather than letting the evil one have the last word, it must have seemed only natural to close with praise to God. It is even possible that the reason Jesus did not give His disciples a doxology on this occasion 
if in fact he did not, was because they were already accustomed to praying this way. In all likelihood, they always ended their petitions with a doxology. One scholar suggests that Jesus must have intended that the Lord's Prayer should conclude with a doxology, but he would have left the user to fill it in for himself. And then he says this, The most important thing, however, and really the only thing that matters, is that this doxology is biblical. And then he says, What could be more biblical than ascribing the kingdom, the power, and the glory to God? So, even if it wasn't in the first manuscripts and then was quickly added, and it was quickly added, we have a document from the first century that includes the Lord's Prayer and the doxology is already there. So, it was added right away very quickly. But even if it's not part of the original, it's, it's fitting because it's biblical and we can support it from other places in Scripture. So, when we say the Lord's Prayer, when we do here at the church, it is biblical to say, Lord, do these things because it's Your kingdom, Your power, and Your glory that we want to do. And Your kingdom, power, and glory will be forever and ever. And then we say, Amen, which simply means, so be it. Part of the beauty of the Lord's Prayer is is that it gives us confidence. And part of the reasons why it gives us confidence is because it brings us full circle and it brings us right back to God. We began by praying that, that God's name would be held, that His kingdom would come, that His will would be done. And then we transition to our requests. But we don't want to stop there. We don't want to stop with the focus on ourselves. We want to return back to God. And the beauty of this is that we don't stop with ourselves. We come back to God reminding us that we got to be God-centered. Because it is so easy to be man-centered, isn't it? And I think there would be a great danger to start by praying for all the things that God wants in the Lord's Prayer and then to talk about all the things that we want and then stop there and go through our day. So it's good to come back and remind ourselves that we're praying these things because of their relationship to God's kingdom because ultimately we want God to be glorified. Because it's real easy to be selfish. I think if we just pray, let me me just close with this, and just test yourself. If you don't have a pattern, and I I know at least evangelicals, they react to that. You know, in, in some... Traditions, you know, they, they have, you know, rote prayers. And I know sometimes evangelicals, they react to that and they say, it doesn't come from the heart. You know, I'm just reciting a prayer and they react to that. And I want to say, yes, it just could be rote. But before you say that's not spiritual and what's really spiritual is a spontaneous prayer, ask yourself this. If I just pray spontaneously, what do I pray for? 90% or more of the time. You know what I pray about? Me too. Me Myself and I. So let me just be honest, and maybe you can relate what I need to keep my prayers from becoming me, myself, and I prayers. I need a pattern. I need a pattern to include the things that are close to God's heart, like we've been saying. His name, His kingdom, His will. I need that pattern. And I think that perhaps you need that pattern as well. And remember, our Lord said, when you pray, pray like this. This isn't a suggestion. Can I remind you of that? This isn't a suggestion. I've heard different 
things for prayer, maybe you've heard the Acts formula, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's good. That's biblical. Who can argue against that? But I want to stress that I'm not just giving you a sample that might be good that maybe you can use or not. Maybe it'll be helpful or maybe not. I'm telling you, Jesus said when you pray, He said, pray like this. So what's the implication if we don't pray like this? We're disobeying Jesus, friends. So I I want to leave you with this. Jesus is saying, pray like this. We need to follow this pattern. This isn't a good suggestion that we can take or leave. Jesus is saying, pray like this. And what we will find is that when we pray like this, we will really pray and our hearts will be transformed. And we'll focus not only on our needs, which which is appropriate, God cares about our needs, but we'll also focus on the things that are close to the heart of God and we'll find ourselves connecting with God when we pray this way. Because we're praying about the things that are on God's agenda as well as the things that are on our agenda and hopefully they're coming together. And hopefully the answer to all our prayers are resulting in God's glory and our joy. Let's pray together. Father, this indeed is a beautiful prayer and it's been a joy to go through it for the last two months. And Father, I just want to pray again that we, that we will follow Jesus' instructions. May we not just have a better understanding of what we're praying for, but may we have a better understanding of how we need to pray, why we need to pray this way. And then I want to ask that by way of Your Spirit, You will help us to pray this way so that we can really pray. So that we can look back on this time and we can say, the Lord's Prayer really changed my prayer life. It really made it more dynamic. Father, that is my prayer for every single one of us in this room. So, Father, help us by Your grace to grow in prayer. In Jesus' name, Amen.